1: Kia ora and welcome along to this, our final, final, final little piece of content for Did Titanic Sink, the um, fantastic Radio New Zealand podcast series that I have brought you, along with my friend, Carlo Ritchie, who joins us now via the magic of the internet.
2: Carlo, can you hear and see me? Yes, hello Tim. It's very nice to be back and finally bring a close to this This breaking story. (laughs) Yes,
1: we do. There is, look, undeniably, we've got to address the elephant in the room. Real newsy vibe in here. Real newsy vibe. Carlo and I wanted to rise to the occasion of the live stream, so we're both donning uh, suits and ties if you're listening to the audio product only. And, um, I mean, I'm in... (laughs) I feel kind of bad about this. I'm in, like, New Zealand's premier news-making room. This is the checkpoint studio for RNZ. Political careers have been decimated at this table. And I came in here with uh, some hot chips and tomato sauce wearing shorts. I feel like I'm sullying the studio somehow.
2: Oh, it's no less an important topic, though, Tim. I mean, it goes right to the source. We've really eviscerated right to the heart of the myth of Titanic. And I think, what better a studio to do it in?
1: Oh, that, that, that's good. That's good. Thanks for um, getting rid of any fears that I've got that we may be sullying the good name also, and spirit of the show. Also, know room.
2: that, I mean, for every, all the other episodes, while we weren't wearing suits, we were wearing period costume, which was just a little something for us.
1: That's absolutely right. And maybe it would be good, actually, Carlo, to kick off if we pull back the curtain a little bit and give people some behind-the-scenes information. Um, before we do any of that, though, because I know that I'll forget to do this later and I'll feel so terrible about it, couple of things number one in the lead up to this uh live stream i had to listen to all the episodes back again pretty good show (laughs) (laughs) when you're in it when you're making it it's very hard to you know get any sense of what you're making is any good and i hadn't had the opportunity to um to listen back with fresh ears but i was i was pretty convinced and compelled man
2: yeah, I do. I I do enjoy it. I had a lot of those moments listening back to it myself where I just staring out the window and like taking a sip of whiskey and then putting it immediately down. Going, well, I'll be goddamn; Those <laughs> boys pulled it off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it would be incumbent on us, um, uh, in light of that, the fact that we actually enjoy to re-listen to the show, to say thank you so much to a couple of people who were so instrumental in bringing it together. The first person I want to mention is Justin Gregory, who is looking after the comment sections for our Facebook and YouTube respectively at the moment. He's our executive producer who looked after us um, throughout the entirety of the project and just an absolute champion and a gentleman. Um, so thank you, Justin. Do you want to say anything to Justin?
2: Yes, a huge thank you, Justin. And also some of, I think my favorite parts of the podcast were his uh, artistic vision in saying like, I insist that there needs to be a flashback to 1908 in this episode. <laughs> and we're like, I don't know, Justin, it Doesn't do we really need it? He's like, yes, there must be. And then listening back, he, he, he was right.
1: The man knows radio. Absolutely. Justin was joined by... Um, so Tim Watkin is the other executive producer Tim's been fantastic he's um, as far as I can tell sort of left us to our own devices which has been great Blair Stagpole we've got to talk about Blair Blair unfortunately he was going to um, operate this uh, little operation this evening he's been our sort of e- uh, editor and studio engineer but um, unfortunately he's, he's fallen a little bit ill so hopefully he's watching now or um, listening in the future but Blair buddy couldn't have done it without you the hours that you put into this just thank you so much, mate. It was a crazy schedule.
2: Yeah, it was. What was it? Set, uh, two months of editing, I think, went into these six six episodes, one bonus episode. It was it was nuts.
1: And so, uh, Carlo, should we talk a little bit about the production week? Because I think this is pretty funny. I've been telling people this sort of offline. Should we tell the story? Yeah, sure, sure. So- <laughs> As we mentioned in the podcast, you know, this all started a few years ago now at a, at a pub in Australia where Carlo and I were swapping stories about conspiracy theories and Carlo um, dropped this bombshell on me and it stayed with me ever since. And then Radio New Zealand said, oh, we're, we're going to do a podcast round for rangatahi, young people, for comedy. And we were like, you know what really cracks up the youth? <laughs> A (laughs) hundred-year-old maritime disaster.
2: (laughs) Nothing strikes through, especially if it's presented by an Australian comic. Absolutely. That's really going to get New Zealand's youth fired up. 100%. So
1: we, you know, entered into it. RNZ said yes, which we were delighted by, and um, it really came to the party. We did a lot of, like, research, and, well, you did a lot of research, Carlo, you know, and you had (laughs) written out these episode descriptions of what you wanted to do. You watched the film. I watched the film once uh, the day before we started recording, and then we got to production week. So Carlo flies over here from Canberra, and we've got a week of recording. And I'm like, I think that's enough time. We should be alright based on my experience doing this sort of thing. We we record a couple of episodes in day one, and we listen back on the Tuesday, and we're like, ah, it's uh, not quite right. Not quite. I don't quite like it. It's not quite good enough. And then we sort of did the same thing on the Tuesday for a memory, and we were sort of closer, but it wasn't quite there. And then we went away on Tuesday night, and then I got <laughs> viral laryngitis <laughs> and couldn't talk for two days. <laughs> and um, we had to record all six episodes in on one day. Take on one day. One take, one day, on the Friday, and which is why we pulled the in the big guns.
2: We, we really must think, which is uh, Chelsea, who our, our director, who we on the Wednesday we realised we really needed someone in the room just to help guide us and shape the episodes a bit, and we both worked with Chelsea before. And we're like, well, let's let's get her in, and and she she sat through us essentially bombarding her with all six episodes, yeah, done completely off the cuff in front of her, <laughs> and she did an incredible job of keeping us to track and um, bringing those episodes together.
1: And I, I've got to say, Carlo. Um... I listened back to obviously that final episode today and I remember being in the room, this was only a few months ago, um, you managed to rattle off that last episode of assembling all the minutiae of the theory with all of the players, all of the stats, all the components and I remember watching you do it off the cuff and I was like impressed, vaguely repulsed it was one of the most impressive feats of broadcasting I've ever seen in my life. So I just, I can't stress to people enough, listen to that last episode, you know, if if, if you want to engage with the series again for any reason, for a road trip maybe over the summertime, and just listen with an ear knowing that Carlo just went off the cuff, reassembling the whole thing for that last ep. It was so cool.
2: Oh, you're very kind, Tim. You're very kind. I, we, I should stress that we had a time, limit because it was about quarter past five, and we lost the studio at six. Yes. And that, that really helped, I think, we had, knowing that we had one shot at it. We had one go at it.
1: Um, now, uh, one other person that we, we have to mention is Eilish Wilson, and um, that was our composer for the theme song, who's a saxophonist who is based between – she's um, Kiwi, based between here and, and in America – and um, it was kind of a funny origin story, uh, but I was talking to Karen O'Leary from Wellington Paranormal about a podcast, a totally different podcast, and then I started telling her about this one. She loved the concept so much, and she's like, my partner is going to go nuts when I tell her. Can I get her on the Zoom call right now just so you can talk to her? So I had a chat to her, and she was like, this sounds crazy. I go, could, you know, you're a musician. Would you be willing to maybe have a go at doing the theme song and then, Carlo, do you want to talk a bit about the brief that you you gave yes, to Irish?
2: Well, I think this kind of speaks to why we've come back for this epilogue is because there are a couple of these behind-the-scenes things that we wanted to talk about with the listeners and with all the, the people watching it live. There's also like some things that we didn't get to address in the series proper, and this is a real chance. And one of them is a huge Easter egg, which I really thought somebody, somebody out there in the world other than me would pick up. But the theme music for Did Titanic Sync is actually Titanic's last distress messages. Um, we got Eilish, like I had like these long sessions with Eilish talking her through the Morse code and how it should sound. And she put together this awesome track that is, you know, the, the Did Titanic Sink" theme music, which is Titanic's final distress call, which is CQD, ship in distress, MGY, which is Titanic's uh, call sign. In Morse code played on the saxophone And it, it's a little easter egg As it turns out just for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm so glad we've got it on the record Because it was one of those things that So much beautiful creative energy went into it And just <laughs> I needed people to know <laughs> <laughs> it's too good to just um, just go unsaid. Um, now, one of the big questions, as we're answering questions throughout, and by the way, if you are joining us live, thank you very much. If you're in New Zealand, please text us on 2101. Um, your comments and questions will be forwarded to us by Justin and we can get to them later on in the piece. Um, or you can leave your comments in the comments section if you're on Facebook or YouTube. Um, so there was some uh, final details about the insurance Um, component of what we talked about on the podcast, Carlo. Do you want to sort of talk us through that?
2: Yeah. So a lot of questions – maybe the question that came up the most from people who talked to me or messaged me about the podcast after the fact was around this insurance claim and about the fact that the money didn't really stack up. Like why would they sink it for not the whole value or not more than the value? And it actually – it's probably worth talking about a question that Abby asked in the very last episode, which is, you know, why would they bother fitting it out with all of these amazing things and paintings and various bits of porcelain, and, you know, all of the fish fixtures, if they were going to just deliberately sink it anyway, because all of that had to be handmade. And I, at the time, um, you know, talked about the fact that these things were years in advance in terms of being manufactured, but, I, it was a. It was because the question came up so many times. I decided to go back and do some more research around the insurance claims about Titanic. And we talked about in the series the fact that this ship was insured for under the value of it cost seven point five million dollars to make at the time, US dollars at the time, and it was insured for about. Uh, Four and a half, five and a half million dollars. So about sixty percent um, of. Yeah, about sixty percent. It was the hull value, at is called, which is that's uh, it's how insurance was worked out. I went back and found that Allianz Insurance, um, who you know you, you may have heard of them, they still exist today. They were one of the seventy insurers that covered the Titanic. Wow. Um, the various claims that were put against the Titanic. And the total insurance paid out at the time was actually $14 million. So twice the value of the ship was the total payout of insurance. So So they made money on this. And the reason they made money was because of all of those tiny little things like the paintings, the fixtures. All of them were separately insured to the hull value. Which does bring
1: the financial motive sort of more back into play. And uh, this is a great time to bring in the very astute Dr. Abby Howells who started probing around this question because she joins us live in the studio...
3: I was here the whole time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for patiently waiting, Abby. How are you doing?
3: Oh, I'm lovely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to make noise again because I have been. I have a real hot mic. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you're here and uh, you you were such a tremendous find um, during this podcast. Obviously, we put your full like unedited chat with with Carla with some bonus content and I just really wanted to... um, get you back for this as well because you were the only person who I met on our travels who could rival Carlo's knowledge and enthusiasm for this topic. So I'm so glad you're back.
3: Oh, it's such a pleasure to be back and an incredible pleasure that this knowledge has come up as an adult and been useful <laughs> in some capacity.
1: <laughs> have you have you been hit with any feedback yourself? If, has anyone on the street um, asked you about your time on Did Titanic Sink at all?
3: Uh, mainly about autism to be honest with you. And someone did make a claim visually they said I think there is a link actually between neuro sort of neurodiversity and the Titanic. <laughs> so yeah.
2: I had I had somebody come up to me in London and say, Look, I I listened to Did Titanic Sink and I really loved it are you on the spectrum? And I said I don't think so. And they said, because I would say that your obsession with this Titanic borders on what I describe as neurotypical. <laughs> like, it <laughs> has to be beyond that in some way.
3: A true compliment, I think, as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like, we got to put that
1: on the posters. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I agree, absolutely. <laughs> Um, well, we did have people uh, bring in some questions of their own. We've had a few people sort of DM us with some commentary and some things that they want to up. Carlo, I've got a couple here to start us off, if that's cool. And Abby, um, you're here because you know so much about this as well. So I imagine you'll be able to help us out and throw in. Um, one of the first ones I've got here, and unfortunately I haven't recorded their name, so sorry to who sent this in. But uh, did they fix the Olympic? Wouldn't it have had signs of damage? Could they not just look at the Olympic to know which ship was based on that damage, which ship was which based on that
2: damage? It's look. It's an excellent question, and I've had this question asked to me a couple of times as well. And the thing is, they did. They. This is why it gets. I get a little bit conspiratorial. I mean, and and I should point out at this time as well. Tim, before I answer your question, yes. I should point out this like everything we talked about in the podcast is fact. The question of did Titanic sink and, you know, whether the the veracity of that claim was, we tested that, but everything we talked about is all true. The ship's fire, the insurance claims, the other ships, the witnesses' sightings, none of that we made up. No, um, and,
1: and I cannot stress this enough. Every uh, constructed piece of radio drama that you heard is based on factual documents that Carlos sourced and put into a format for people to read But those are court documents Those are official documents yeah. from history
2: uh, yeah. that, that we, was... we have to thank the Titanic Inquiry Project For going through and meticulously annotating Those mostly handwritten notes And putting them into PDF savable files Which are available online And it's an incredible read If you want to get into some summer, light summer reading Of the 2000 <laughs> pages of both inquiries So with, um, that,
1: with that addressed Back to our core question yes. Did, did yes. they fix the Olympic?
2: Yes, so this is where I start going a little bit more conspiratorially because even if they didn't switch the ships, right, so the Olympic just gets fixed up and the Titanic is the ship that sank, the ship that left Belfast was completely undamaged. Like, it had been fixed up so well that there was no signs of damage. There was no listing to port or listing to starboard. There, no, there were no structural issues within the ship and there were certainly no aesthetic differences they were able to take the the damaged panels that had been caved in by the collision with the Hawk in a previous, uh, the, the very first time the Olympic went in for its initial repairs following the Hawk collision, they took the uh, the massive steel plates off the ship and replaced them completely so that the, it was unnoticeable. So this is the thing is there's no, there's no visual clue from the damage of which ship is which and It is. uh, It it really does strike me that the fact that when the Olympic sails out of Belfast Lock and starts its next Atlantic crossing, it's just it's like essentially brand new. It's like people comment on the fact that it's really been done to such a high level of repair that it's you cannot tell the difference.
1: This isn't something I asked you in the podcast, but do you know if the public had an awareness of the incident with the hawk? Like, was that sort of talked about was it newsworthy or noteworthy at all
2: it was definitely it was definitely reported at the time yeah there's definitely in the news but it's the same as any it was such a minor disaster in the scheme of things other than the fact that it involved the biggest ship in the world um which made it slightly more newsworthy but it there were no fatalities yeah um there was this huge legal battle that went on but you know like there are ship collisions all the time um they they don't stay in the public consciousness for a, for a huge hugely long time. Sure. Um, so it it was reported on at the time, but it didn't sort of stay around.
1: I've got another question for us here, team. Um, if the intention was to sink it slowly and have everyone disembark, why still only have sixteen lifeboats?
3: Well, I guess. Well, first of all, there were twenty lifeboats. There ah. were sixteen. Um, Like traditional lifeboats, and then four collapsible lifeboats, is that correct? That's right. And
2: then then I think technically two of the what's called shipboats, which are kept uncovered and they can be used for like um, getting around between ships or if the ship need if somebody falls off and they need to take a boat quickly down. um, I can't think of what they're called. But yeah, so technically, I think 22. Go catch, go catch, eh, (laughs) AB.
3: Um, but yeah, other than that, I'll, I'll pass it off to you, Carlo, but, um, <laughs> I just wanted to, um, be a pedant for a second.
2: Good. No,
3: this... <laughs> no it's a good
1: well, question. And get in, I mean, I guess,
2: there, I guess they're referring specifically to the 16 lifeboats, which is like, technically there are only 16 lifeboats plus the four collapsible boats, plus the two ships boats. Um, but yeah, going, going away from that question slightly. So it, we talked a little bit about this in the podcast, but a year earlier or i think maybe maybe 18 months earlier the republic which was a ship with a similar passenger capacity still a smaller ship though it sank but it sank so slowly that all of its passengers were able to get off right. and the view at the time wasn't that lifeboats were for keeping people alive in the sea they were really for taxiing people between the ships and right. so on the titanic and as well as you know a lot of those large luxury liners they had these massive doors which were lower down on the deck and they were used for loading passengers. So you'll remember in the film when Jack and Fabrizio win their tickets and they make the last dash to get on the Titanic, they go through this massive door quite low down on the ship. So those doors, the idea was you would lower the lifeboats, then those doors would be opened and then passengers would be able to get off through those doors directly onto lifeboats and be transferred to other ships. Um, And this is one of the issues of why they think Titanic sank much quicker than it should have or started listing to one side is crew were sent down to open those doors on the Titanic. And it's still unclear whether they were then sent to close those doors when it became apparent that the ship was sinking quite rapidly. And so there's this question about whether some of the doors were left open, which then meant that once the water reached, I think, I think they're on E deck maybe or D deck, um, once they reach that level, war could just Gush in through, when you think That the, the holes that did sink the Titanic Were about the size of a bath tower These were like full doors, so you know Twice the size of all those holes So immediately it increases the Huge volume of water that's pouring but
1: ba- in Back to the lifeboat question Because your theory Was that they The plan was to intentionally sink this thing Slowly using a coal bunker fire So that people could safely disembark Onto these other ships so how mm-hmm. does how does this answer that sort of well bit well of the because theory? if it
2: sank over a period of like between eight and twelve hours then that's more than enough time for other ships to get there like the right, so
1: the uh, other ships the Carpathia and the California was that one of them mm-hmm. Is that, yes I, yep. get them confused in my head um, they they were all within the vicinity where um, if the ship was sinking slowly enough they could basically just use the existing sixteen slash twenty lifeboats to ferry back and forward between these close spy vessels
2: exactly plus whatever lifeboats that ship that's coming has True, and the Cal- right. the Carpathia also had 16 lifeboats
1: right
2: um, so that's enough to kind of quickly move people if you well as quickly as you need when you have a ship that's sinking very slowly cool. and this comes into that idea of who these two mystery ships were as well like if you're assuming that you have these two other ships out there then even if it sinks in a shorter period of time you kind of know that there are waiting rescue ships
1: um, I've got a final question for this section and just once again if you've got um, some questions or comments for us and you're joining us live you can text if you're in New Zealand 2101 or leave your comments in the comments section and we'll get to it shortly um, Carlo how <laughs> how do you get your credibility back now that you've told everyone Titanic didn't sink so this was the, the old switcheroo that happened at the end and Abby, we asked you about this on uh, the episode itself. How You felt about this. Yeah. A little bit of betrayal. Uh,
3: Absolutely. Um, Judas Iscariot, I hope you enjoy your 30 pieces of silver. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is um, like sitting here like a newscaster um, is is a good way to get some credibility back, I think. Yeah. I want to
1: put (laughs) this question entirely to Abby, actually. How does Carlo Ritchie get his credibility back (laughs) after constructing this huge house of cards with um, (laughs) such elaborate Features and rooms and hallways and then taking away one at the bottom at the very last episode. How does this man get it back?
3: Oh, there's a lot of ways you can get credibility back, I guess. Um, One of them would be, um, how does one get your credibility back? I'm trying to think of, I mean, it's a redemption story. Yeah.
1: a bigger, a bigger, different conspiracy, like double down. Yeah. Or, or
2: a second series really just exploring the features and details of the Titanic.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think you've got to go down there, Carlo. I think you've got to get into the sea and, <laughs> and <laughs> prove once and for all. <laughs> so
1: like a penance situation, like really yeah. self-flagellate using similar conditions. So basically yes. do what Jim Cameron did to Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet if the brief behind-the-scenes footage from what I've seen is to be believed. That that water was cold, man. Yeah. (laughs) Even the one the actors was in was cold.
2: Yeah, so I've I've got to go and get into the Atlantic. You do. You
1: do. This is like a (laughs) pseudo-religious sort of coming-to-Jesus moment. Yeah.
3: I'll wash myself in those waters
2: and be redeemed.
3: A pilgrimage to the middle of the North Atlantic (laughs) where the Titanic sunk.
2: (laughs) Um, That's
1: to be done. Now, we had so many great stories interwoven of the characters that comprised this grander tale of Titanic. Crew members, I mean my favourite Abby I think was the the baker who you mentioned. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's
3: great. Charles <laughs> this guy
1: <who> <laughs> Just saw what was happening, decided to raid the liquor cabinet, got absolutely hammered, swim around for a little bit, didn't even get his hair wet.
3: <laughs> yeah, he's like, I didn't even know it was cold out
1: there. <laughs> so good. Um, so I wanted to um, open the floor because there were these two characters that we sort of um, touched upon a l- tiny bit I think in the podcast, but we talked about a little bit more offline, and this is obviously the space to fill in some of those gaps of the unsinkable man and the unsinkable woman, um, who are these these two fascinating characters associated with uh, with the event. Abby, would you be able to take the reins on this and, and tell us about this unsinkable woman?
3: Yes. Well, un- uh, usually unsinkable is referred to as Molly Brown, who is like a first-class passenger.
0: Um, oh, she's in the movie.
3: Yeah, she's um, Kathy Bates in yes, the movie. Yes, yeah. Um, but there's actually someone on board who was even more unsinkable than Molly Brown, and that was a um, stewardess called Violet Jessup. And um, Violet was born in Argentina. Uh, She became a stewardess on the seas. Initially, when she applied, she was like, hello, I'd like to be a stewardess. And they said, you are too hot for this job. And she said, (laughs) I can look trash, I promise. And they said, you better. And so she went out and bought clothes and made herself look really bad, like all her, not her colors, all kinds of things. And she showed (laughs) back up. She's like, may I be a stewardess now? And they were like, no, all right then. And she became a stewardess um they're quite interesting stewardesses because if there's only like i mean there are 900 almost 900 crew members on board the titanic but i think only 20 i think it's 23 were women there's there weren't that many female crew members right and most of them were stewardesses and their job was to sort of look after the female passengers and clean their rooms and run errands and that kind of thing um so basically uh it was not easy. It's not easy being in this position, and she was actually fired from her last job at the Royal Mail Line because the captain um, made some advances at her. Oh, well, she wrote this in her memoirs, and she was like, "No, not interested." Um, and then he fired her, but for being too flirtatious. Uh, so that's classic how, <laughs> men, am I right? Yeah, that's how she ended up at the White Star Line, and she didn't want to work for the White Star Line because the North Atlantic crossing was quite rough and also they expected a really high standard of service right. uh, from people and she was like i don't know if i'm bothered bother with that uh, but she she got her job but basically first of all she was on the olympic when it collided with the hms hawk oh wow so she worked on the olympic uh and was on board during that collision which was like um you know no one died but it was probably pretty stressful totally um so she continued to work on the seas um and then, of course, she was on the Titanic when the Titanic went down, and um, she survived that. She made it into a lifeboat with the other stewardesses, wow. and she survived again. Uh, continued to work on the seas, and then was on the third sister ship. Come on, uh, yeah, the Britannic Come when that on. went down. No, uh, so the Britannic, uh, she became a nurse in the war, and the Britannic was hit by uh, possibly a torpedo or it had a landmine, and it exploded. And Violet was on that boat as well. Um, and that one, she also did survive. She got a um, head fracture. This was her most traumatic one. She made it into a lifeboat, but then the lifeboat was, like, being sucked into the propellers of the boat, and she had to jump into the water, and she had a um, head injury. But she did survive.
1: (laughs) I I imagine that one in particular, like, the fatalities must have been pretty high, right?
3: Actually, less than the Titanic. I think there was only, like, 30 deaths or something like that, but they were bad deaths. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I, but and then she continued to work on the seas for the next 30 years incredible yeah but I guess after the first one you'd be like oh no that was just all. and then the second one you'd be like oh dear surely it won't happen again
1: <laughs> after the yeah. third one like yeah. getting back on a ship you'd yeah. have to be made of some pretty strong stuff
3: yeah I reckon I'd be like man uh surely not <laughs> do you I mean
1: Abby do you because you mentioned offhandedly which maybe we'll get into if we've got time in this uh, live stream that you believe in ghosts so you've obviously got a pretty open mind to perhaps the paranormal and things we don't observe in everyday life yes this woman seems kind pseudo cursed like one way yeah. of looking at it is that she was blessed because she mm-hmm. survived all these things but the other way to look at it is <laughs> these things kept happening when she was on yeah. these ships.
3: Well, actually, even more stuff happened to her. She almost died of tuberculosis and scarlet fever when she was a kid. Um, her prognosis was so bad that they um, were like, oh, she's only got a few months to live. And actually, one time when she was on a ship, um, she went back to Buenos Aires, which is where she was uh, she grew up, and went back to the hospital <laughs> where they told her that she was going to die and it was like, look who's back, baby. <laughs> it's me. So this woman so- Job was just yeah. cheating death <laughs> yeah, in a variety she really of different ways. death a lot. Incredible. Um, yeah. But do
1: you believe she was like had some property to her, some <laughs> supernatural property?
3: I don't know. She seems more like a Job type figure. Is he the one that was <laughs> tormented by God?
1: Yeah. <laughs> or Lot? Yeah. Yeah. You could be. You could be right about that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, but yeah. No, so that's uh, violent. Yeah. Truly really unsinkable.
1: Incredible. And Carla, do you want to tell us about the man they refer to as the the unsinkable man?
2: The, well, the unsinkable stoker, yes. John <laughs> Arthur Priest, who was uh, not only on all three of the Titanic ships, he was on the Hawk, he was on the Titanic, and he was on the Britannic. But he was also on three other ships, two that co- had collisions and two that sank. So he was on six ships all up that had naval disasters, four which sank, two which collided. Wow. And all of them before he was 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. So he, he was... He was this, he was a stoker. So, one of the guys who shoveled coal into the boilers to keep them going, yeah. which it's even, even that is a crazy thing that he survived all this sinking because yeah. usually when they had fatalities, it was the stokers and anyone that was a crewman below decks because just the chances of getting out through the whole belly of the ship to get to the surface, to get into a lifeboat to survive was so small that chance. But he managed to do that six times. Um, So the first ship he was on was called the RMS uh, Astoria, I think, which is a collision in 1908 on its maiden voyage. Then he signed up to a beautiful ship called the RMS Olympic. And you better believe it had a collision (laughs) with the Hawk. Then he decided to transfer to a more safe ship, the RMS Titanic which also then sank. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that story, guys. I certainly did. <laughs> and he was on the Britannic. And, it, yeah, as Abby said, it struck a landmine and sank so rapidly. And a lot of those fatalities were people who were killed by the landmine in the belly of the ship. And he survived that, managed to get out on another lifeboat. Um, then he was on the HMS Alcantara, which was torpedoed and sank in 1916 during the First World War. So he then signed onto a merchant ship being like I'm I'm not going to go into armed merchant ships I'm going to go into just a normal merchant ship so he went onto the SS Donegal and then it got torpedoed and sank. No way. <laughs> and after that he was like and interestingly the Donegal had another Titanic survivor who was like Violet Jessop uh, on the other three ships but he didn't survive the sinking of the Donegal. Um, but yeah after that he he stopped being a stoker Good. not because he felt like it was a dangerous career and not because he thought he was cursed because other people didn't want to work with him anymore. Very enough, were like, man. Well, that guy that's been on six ships, four of which sank. I'm and... not
1: particularly superstitious, but if I was in the trenches with a dude, like if I'm in the <laughs> coal bunker shoveling coal into this fire and we're striking up a conversation to pass the time and he tells me he's been involved in <laughs> half a dozen, like most of them fatal accidents at sea, I'd I'd probably try and get a transfer.
3: Yeah, if he if I was uh, showing up to my first day at work da, 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 and he walked in, I'd be like, I would put that shovel down <laughs> and I'd say no.
2: Grandpa Simpson no, with the hair, so he yeah. walked right back he off keeps the shelf. Going down. I'm telling you, there's something bad happening. Yeah.
1: I wonder if they started putting his photo up. You know, like how you have shoplifters, just like don't hire this guy. Yeah, <laughs> make sure this guy doesn't turn up. That is just incredible. I guess there's some explanations around, like if you work for White Star Line. They had a you know a run of a few bad things that happened, uh, with the, particularly these Olympic-class liners. But to have like half a dozen <laughs> maritime disasters and survive all of them is just... It re, it, in some ways, it makes me a little jealous. You know, they've really lived a life. They've really yeah. done some stuff. They've gotten out there, shaken it I think, up.
2: I, yeah. I think they actually gave him a medal for his service to the Merchant Marine for having survived so many near-death disasters at sea.
1: The ultimate participation award. (laughs) You're still alive. (laughs) No ghost. trying circumstances. Um, Right, what I want to do now is uh, uh, something a little bit offbeat and a little bit fun. Going back in history to Abby's creative mind as, I believe, a child. Do you want to tell us about what we're going to do now, Abby?
3: Okay. So we're going to do a small reading of a script or a screenplay that I wrote that was highly inspired by my recent viewing of the movie The Titanic. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, even though I've called it a screenplay, it's very much a story um, with dialogue in it. It's called La Soup Co., which doesn't mean anything. I made it up to sound romantic and fancy. Also because m- my parents had recently been to see uh, Life is Beautiful by Roberto Benigni. And they told me it had won a lot of Academy Awards. So bear in <laughs> mind that I intended this to be Oscar bait. <laughs> I was going for critical acclaim. So Imagine. I'm going to play the role of narrator. But um, I was wondering if I could get the two of you to read the key roles. Nothing would bring me more of, joy. Um man and woman. <laughs> um, they don't have names, was it an artistic choice you you, you know who's so. to say
1: you don't need them to chase that Oscar. you don't need to name characters oh naming characters conventional uh, Carlo, i'll I'll give it to you. Do you want to be man or woman i I'll be the woman cool, I'll be man then
3: very nice, okay, so it starts off the first thing I've written is it's set in Spain. And that's great knowledge because it's literally never mentioned again. But do bear in mind that this entire thing is set in Spain. It's
1: a romantic setting.
3: Romantic setting. Oh, it's set just after World War Two, And initially I do have the date as 1872, but that is crossed out and replaced <laughs> with 1949. And do treasure that because that's the only historical <laughs> research we got. Okay. Okay. You can see the Titanic influence here. Um the first line is old man telling a story of his long lost love on opera, which was Oprah. Um, you didn't expect Oprah to be in this, but she is.
1: In 1940. Okay. I, I won't interrupt. Sorry.
3: Yeah. Don't question it. To Sorry. Me. But this is a little bit like the old lady at the beginning of the, the oh, Titanic gotcha. movie. Yes, yes. It was 1949, and the war was over. And I always wanted to be in the navy, but I hated the sight of blood, and I never liked guns. And had lost a loved one on the Titanic, very <laughs> unfortunate for me <laughs> to have misspelled that. But the Titanic mentioned there an even worse nautical disaster than the Titanic, but very much brushed under history's rug. I, but I still wanted to be in the navy. I went in for the training. I was practically a gold mine to the Navy since they had lost so many people in the war. So I went for the interview, first they gave me my uniform, which I thought was a bit surprising because it was very fancy and you usually had to pay at least $200 for it. But I found out that it had belonged to one of the dead Navy captains, but I'm still very fond of it. I went to the interview, I started talking about myself and they told me to go away and never come back again after 5 minutes. After the interview, I strolled along the dock and did what most people did in this situation. Think of things to cheer yourself up. But my mind kept going back to the interview and I cursed myself for showing them the scar on my right shoulder where a shark had bitten me on my very first fishing trip with my dad. Then I saw her. She was walking along the beach with a small dog singing. It was the most beautiful voice and person I had ever seen in my life. She was wearing a navy uniform and singing... In the Navy by the village people Just to confirm she is singing in the Navy By the village people
2: 1949 Spain (laughs) Yeah
3: the song was on everybody's lips And she had on several medals So I guess she'd probably been in the Navy My brain at that time just went dead And all I could think about was her And I saw her in a wedding dress And me in a suit next to her Outside a church And I knew that was now my goal in life As it had been before to not make a fool of myself I stepped forward and forgot I was on a dock and stepped right into the water. The girl immediately used her navy skills and ran to the edge and swam strongly to where I was and pulled me back to shore and I lay very still so she would have to do mouth to mouth but no such (laughs) luck. She waited and I gave up and sat up pretending to be dazed. She helped me get up and then spoke.
2: Are you all right, mate?
3: I stared into her eyes and said as my first words to her,
1: Yes, uh, I think so.
3: She, to my pleasure, began to feel for (laughs) broken bones, but there was none. She said,
2: It was quite a nasty fall you took there.
3: I agreed by saying,
1: It seemed to go on forever.
3: She laughed and asked again,
1: Are you
2: sure you're all right?
3: Fine. I answered, and she walked along the beach singing again. Then I did something that made me proud years later. I called out to her and thanked her in a way that I had heard my mother say to my father when he had given her a diamond ring. She smiled and laughed. My heart broke and I turned and started to sing and dance down the beach. End of act one.
1: <laughs> Tremendous writing, good. Thank
3: you. Age check again. How old were you when you wrote this? Eleven.
1: That is phenomenal.
3: <laughs> and I, I left it where it is because then they go to a shop for like a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the
1: editorial. It goes off <laughs> the
3: rails real fast.
1: <laughs> for the live stream. Yeah,
3: there's a lot of shop talks. Oh, what are you going to get at the shop? You know, it's, it's weird. You're
1: going to watch the these
3: Some of them are like fantastic
1: writers. And then they go on to form an unhealthy obsession about the Titanic and land his guests on podcasts and open up a whole new world. Mm. Um, but this is this is quality stuff. This could go somewhere.
3: It's not that bad, eh?
1: I don't know if like, this draft would be the Oscar-winning one, but <laughs> oh, no, the, no, the just, bones are good.
3: Yeah, it's, for, it's very much the first draft, but there's something there. Absolutely, I feel like.
1: yeah. And quite, um, I would say, like very creative. It would never occur to me as an 11-year-old doing creative writing to... Uh, write something in the first person of a gender that I'm not. That's yeah, really creative. It's an
3: interesting choice, eh, say That I am a man. I guess I'd really seen the Oscar movies and have been like, well, you know uh, Roberta Benini was a man, you know, everybody you gotta have the female driven movies that's just not given the same audiences.
1: got it. So this is yeah. actually um like
3: Me catering to the internalized
1: the internalized misogyny, effectively. Yeah. You saw yeah. Hollywood, you're like, Okay, I get it. I know what I have to do.
3: I have
0: to
1: be a man. <laughs> yeah. Got have to it. be man, well, great writing, nonetheless. <laughs> thank you. Um, okay, a couple more questions now, and sorry, Carlo, unless you want to give any feedback on our um Oscar impending script
2: no i mean i would I would suggest that potentially something that's worth changing for the Oscar winning version is to set it in a country that didn't remain neutral in the second world war <laughs> 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 but uh, <laughs> Admittedly, that war could be the Spanish Civil War, which I may have had a naval party.
0: <laughs> we
1: have had a text message, and if you are joining us in New Zealand uh, on the live broadcast, 2101 is the text number, or you can just send us stuff in the comments section. Jack from Wilton has asked, how many inter-islanders would fit into the Titanic? Carlo, I don't even know if you'd be familiar with the Inter-Islander, but it's the ferry that goes between the North and South Island um, across the Cook Strait.
2: I've just done... How many of those would fit into the Titanic?
1: Yeah, yeah. How big is the Inter-Islander? The only thing I can find immediately to hand, and I can dig in a little bit, is that it is 220 meters long. Do you remember That's how long? That's quite the big.
3: Yeah, it's long.
1: Um how long's the
2: titanic do you remember oh that's an excellent question from memory is it 709 meters
3: that sounds right yes i um have the image of the newspaper where they put it up like this against like bottom skyscrapers you guys are
1: way off according to what i'm seeing on the internet oh. 269 meters is 269 that... meters yeah does that does that trend? wow does that commit... it might be 709 feet Oh, yeah, that might be it, yeah. Um, Which means the inter-Islander is about It's about the size of the Titanic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a... So, one. Yeah, so, Jack, to answer your question, it, I assume uh, in every other dimension it's probably quite, quite different, but lengthwise, you're only getting one of those in there, mate.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's actually interesting because when you, you look at the Titanic, most modern cargo ships are bigger than the Titanic was. Modern um,
1: cargo ships are crazy, though.
2: Yeah, but I mean it just in terms of scale like it it's not a huge ship by right, any right. by any mean feet, you know. It's um even like modern cruise ships dwarf the Titanic. Um by, by a,
1: modern standards.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not a uh, not not a huge ship.
1: Okay. Um, I've got uh, some more questions here From people joining us Abby I want to throw this one to you first Did the movie that I assume this is the James Cameron movie Because I recently found out There's three I think Titanic movies
3: Yeah there was one made in the 50s I believe 57. A Night to Remember was one um, They made one based on the An autobiography I think as well yeah. And
1: then Jim Cameron's one yeah. I'm assuming this question is about the recent one The 1997 James Cameron one Did the film get anything outrageously incorrect?
3: I think the major thing that I think of, I don't know what you, Carlo, was that um, Jack was like invited into the first class dining lounge <laughs> to like have dinner. And I don't think that ever would have happened. Like they, they, the classes were so incredibly segregated. I don't think they, they ever would have happened that they would have allowed a steerage passenger into yeah. first class, even if he was hot and scrubbed up nice.
1: You're going to have bouncers. Between, like, in first class. I guess the staff yeah. are kind of maintaining, you know, the, the, the separation or segregation between the classes,
3: Yeah. Right? Oh, there was this one guy there, I can't remember his name, but he was a little bit of a con artist and he came in in second class and then put on hoops of jewels and then strutted around pretending he was first class. They're rocks. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, that. that's the one that I think of. Well, what about you, Carlo?
2: I think probably the big one is, like, all of the paintings that Kate has, um, you know, like... She has Picasso and a piece, I think, um, and a Monet painting, like all these like extraordinary famous available works, which is a very odd thing to put in a film where you know the ship is going to sink, you know? Yeah. um, Yeah, that always sort of, uh, that's always an interesting one. Um, The other thing is like the big one is the Titanic stops after they hit the iceberg, which didn't happen in real life. So in real life, it stopped like immediately after the iceberg, but then Captain Smith ordered it back up because like, "Let's just run for a little bit longer and see how it's going." Which is also one of the reasons why it sank much faster because the water was say, make, pouring in.
1: That would make things far worse, right? Like <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, really exactly. taking on water if you're moving through the ocean at that point.
2: Exactly, and that that kind of goes to the claim of the, you know them trying to get closer to other ships. So in this case, maybe trying to get closer to the Californian for rescue or. Right. To the position where they thought other ships were, like the SS Parisian, for example.
1: Right. And I'll add a detail which, um, Carlo, correct me if I've got the details wrong, but having just re listened to the podcast, what you believe, well, the American version of Bruce Ismay was a very um, villain colored sort of caricature of him that was oh, yeah. continued on in the film as it's been, you think he was sort of unfairly recorded in history and James Cameron continued that tradition in the film.
2: Totally. And I think they do that for all of the British characters, really. Like, there's a very much an American, like, you know, an anti British feeling throughout the film, which I can certainly understand. But, you know, like, there's just constantly, like, officers coming into deck drinking tea in the emergency, like, what's going on in here? You know, and then, like, (laughs) eagle. Like, there's constant, almost every officer is shown at some point holding a cup of tea at one point just like to really visually establish that they're English, you know.
1: (laughs) Okay, well this brings us to a very um, special part of the live stream and something that I've probably had as the big ticket item in my head going into this. As I mentioned at the top, Dr. Abbey House was an incredible find through the journey of us um, bringing on comedic guests to join us and reflect back to us if um, Carlo had gone insane, if if he was dragging me into his insanity um, and Striking upon a person in the New Zealand comedy community who was going toe-for-toe toe with Carlo on Titanic Facts was a revelation. And so what I wanted to do during this, um, this live stream, this final uh, sort of full stop on the series, is to pit you two against each other to try and determine one Titanic champion by having a five-question quiz to see who really knows the most about the Titanic.
2: Can well we... I already feel a certain degree of trepidation given that I just thought the Titanic was nearly a kilometer long.
3: <laughs> yeah, I also just prove it. me and Carla have been so nervous about this quest that every email we've had about this have been like oh god the <laughs> credibility
2: all of the credibility of this podcast could go out of the way like, no. I'm trying to restore this thing. You know yeah. like before I did this podcast I was only a 1% invested in this conspiracy. Now I'm like 25% in belief of it. I desperately need to get my credibility back and instead I'm going to do a quiz and just absolutely fall. Carlo, you're looking at
1: this all wrong. Much like the Titanic, we are fully invested against loss here because (laughs) one of the two major participants on the podcast is going to win. So that will go some way to restoring credibility in the series itself. My
3: heart is beating. I also have a real tendency to absolutely lose it in a quiz situation.
1: Well, there's only two of you so let's find out how you do, Abby. (laughs) take a breath do you want to take a a drink of water while i I (laughs) present our first question i'm gonna um we'll use the honor system a little bit here folks carlo you're on an internet connection but it's it's pretty quick so i'm just going to get you to buzz in with your names Mm -hmm. if you want to go first okay um on the question so here's the first question you can't see my screen are you no okay great first question i feel a little embarrassed asking it now because it's come up earlier in the episode. What was Titanic's gross registered tonnage, a.k.a. her carrying capacity to the nearest metric
3: ton?
2: I I think I know this, but I...
3: I absolutely uh, do not know it.
2: I think I do know it, but I might be thinking of its displacement, which is not too dissimilar, but then I might get it completely wrong. I have a feeling... Oh, God, am I going to double... I have a feeling it's twenty two thousand and something tons, but now there's like this thing at the back of my mind saying it's forty one thousand. But I think it's twenty. Is it twenty two thousand?
1: What do you, you tell me? What you want to lock in? <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: it's it's something around twenty two thousand tons. I think I'm
1: locking you in for twenty two thousand. Evie, what is your guess?
3: Oh gosh, my hands are shaking. This is terrifying. Um, okay, I'm gonna go. Um, I'm gonna go with. <laughs> Carlo overshooting again. And I'm going to go as 15,000 tons.
1: Carlo is closest, but other Carlo was more closer. So
2: (laughs) the (laughs) correct answer is. 46,329. Oh, no. no. I 2nd I guess myself. I was like, no, I think you're overshooting, Carla. you got
1: to damn, the damn you, you do need to calm down a little bit here. You're self fulfilling like you're getting these obvious facts wrong. No one knows this stuff off the top of their head. Please Our calm worst down.
3: fears are coming true with the first question, Tim.
1: Okay, this one's not a math one. It's a person one. Okay. Who was... Titanic's most wealthy passenger,
3: Abby. Go, John Jacob
1: Astor. Carlo, do you want to take a guess?
2: Yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure it's John Jacob Astor the fourth as well.
1: Abby gets the point because she got there first. You're both correct.
2: <laughs> well the done. The real winner is knowledge.
3: says, <laughs> "Thank you." Yeah, I'm all good. Yeah, I don't lose completely my credibility. <laughs> I haven't colored myself.
2: What are you? <laughs> what you cannot establish
1: that as a verb. <laughs> Every do, do you know about this cat? John Jacob Esther the Fourth, his name is my name too.
3: Yes, yeah. He um he he died on the ship. He was one of the um the I uh, I I can't remember but did he I believe he changed into a tuxedo to go down the Oh, was the he ship? one of
1: those guys? And sort of went down like
3: gentlemen. I I think it was Guggenheim who um put a flower in his lapel and Ah, said, Go down like gentlemen, boys. Yeah, Yeah, but um yeah, I know he was one of the most wealthy people on the ship. And was quite
2: Am I right, Abby? Was he travelling with his mistress and she survived?
3: (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Go here. And and I think his mistress was pregnant, maybe with like a
3: Yes. He was out running a scandal, I think.
2: Yes, a scandal child um His. his, yeah, yeah. That is scandalous. And his name was Ma- Madeline. No, that's his wife, Madeline Astor. I don't
1: know. I, I wrote some of these details down. The others I'm going by memory. But I, I believe he was the heir of a um, a wood pulp fortune from the <laughs> Astor family. Nice. Apparently, he was by far the richest individual on Titanic. He was worth an estimated by today's money and USD two billion dollars wow. adjusted for inflation. Two billion US dollars is what he was mm. worth. Okay, so right now you're both on one apiece. We will now go to our
2: third question. Uh, you're great! You're giving me other Carlos' answer as a point?
1: <laughs> you're The one you locked in was closer than Abby, so you oh, get the I point see. for it um, because she went down to 15,000, you see. Okay, question of the third. There were 706 third-class passengers on Titanic. My question is, how many bathtubs were available for them to bathe in? Abby. Carlos. Oh, it's close. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give it to Abby. I think she got there just a tiny That's bit quicker. Two, Carlo, one. Abby is correct. It was two. <laughs> oh, well done, Abby. Oh,
3: yes, yeah, I have to. Thank you. I've, um. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited. Like, you I'm so, won yet. I've you been flipping I know, but I just gotten some correct and I was so scared I was gonna come out here and just really flip out as I do in a quiz situation. Yeah, you can lose
1: now and with respect. I you can, know. I can you, hold my you're, head you're up high after
3: this. It's just all you want in life.
1: So two bathtubs between over seven hundred people sounds pretty crazy, but I was sort of digging into this a little bit and apparently not as crazy for the time as it sounds. Even in um, the... Because they're the steerage passengers, is that right, mm-hmm. third class? So they're like the lowest who were on board. Is that correct? Was
2: yeah. There, was there one... In possession of the ship? Uh, yeah, it was
1: sort of a steam and their, their quarters and that kind of thing. They, they would have they yes, been the yeah.
3: cheapest tickets. Yeah,
1: so. yeah, yeah. Six to eight, Between six and eight pounds to get on the ship at the time. And um, they all did have suites with a um, basin. And uh, apparently, like... The standards of the Titanic, even for these lower class passengers, far exceeded any other ship. Oh, so it yeah. was quite luxurious for the time um, f- for passengers, even in third class.
3: Yeah, they had hot water in their basins, which they a lot of them wouldn't have had at home.
1: Yeah, I did, I, yeah. I read, and electricity as well. Yeah. Like a lot of these people at the time wouldn't have had um, electricity in their houses and they, and they did on the ship in their rooms. So um, crazy to think how, how much luxury we've got these days, you know? We're all living like pharaohs. Like Egyptian pharaohs, and we just complain about everything. Anyway, fourth question for the quiz, folks. How many dogs survived the Titanic?
3: Abby. Abby? One.
2: Carlo? I also thought it was one, but I'm just, for interest's sake... Because Abby mentioned in the podcast like this, this dog, little Pomeranian dog surviving on someone's lap. And I had this feeling there was a dog also pulled out of the water. So I'm just going to, for interest's sake, say two.
1: Carlo, you're correct. Oh, there was a Pomeranian I'm... and a Pekingese.
2: There you go. Well,
3: I you're getting your credibility back, Carlo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so just to let you folks know, we're on the fifth question now, and you have both two points apiece. Oh, gosh. Oh. The stakes... Could not possibly be higher <laughs> the thing Oh goodness do. me if, um, if you're just tuning in at this point Welcome to the live stream We're about to, determine, <laughs> we are about to determine Who is the most knowledgeable on the Titanic Out of Carlo and Abby
2: Definitively
1: It comes down to this Okay How many officers Were tasked with updating the clocks Aboard Titanic as they passed Into different time zones Oh
3: I don't know
2: I, Yeah, I that have
3: to be a guess
2: I I'm going to just guess as well I Yeah, I'm going to just guess
1: I'm
3: going to guess six. Oh, will someone
1: say their name? Someone say their name to Buzz in,
2: rules of rules Oh, car, sorry, Carlo? Carlo I'm going to guess one And it Ed, Sorry, keep going um, I thought when you were saying you have to say their name, I was like, and I think it's going to be Petman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Please name all of the crew who updated the clocks. Um, okay, so you, your answer is one. You're locking that in. I
2: th- yeah. I feel bad about it. I'm going to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I'm just going to have to go with one. And to Abby now.
3: Um, You know what? I'm going to go with three. Okay. Abby.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the correct answer is... One,
3: Was it Pittman?
1: You've done, huh? Was it Pittman? It was the captain. So interestingly, the Titanic had um, a system where all of the clocks aboard were synced to the master clock, so the captain could update it, and all of them in real time would update along with it. So there was no manual changing of the clocks apart from that single one in the captain's. area that is incredible
2: i did not know that i didn't that.
3: know that my sincerest congratulations to you carlo <laughs> oh, You're
2: yeah. well done carlo <laughs> well done it was a guess though i feel i mean I'd, l- I'd just like
1: to congratulate myself because d- d- all these other questions i think you guys could have like you know guessed ahead of time done some research but i really wanted to get some curly one for the Ed one. i did a lot of research last <laughs> night to try and figure some some weird stuff out that you guys wouldn't know
3: i was so sure i was going to be what was the final song That played as the band went down Am
1: I right in saying that's not known though?
3: Yeah, I mean they say it's like Nearer God to Thee But it was actually a waltz Called the Autumn Autumn Autumn
2: waltz Yeah. And there's also somebody who claimed that it was Alexander's ragtime band
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, we are fast running out of time For uh, this live stream We've got two minutes left And um Ebi, I wanted to open the floor to you. First of all, I don't mean to skip over it. Carla, congratulations on your win. What a a great um, 3-2 victory. Couldn't have scripted it better, but well done for coming out on top there.
3: Credibility back, confirmed. Indeed,
1: indeed. Abby, um, do you think we've got time? There was a delightful story that you started telling me the other day about a, a, a tale of marriage woe about the Carters that I oh, thought we yes. could
3: end on. They um, really um, proved that. You really bring yourself wherever you go. But basically, they were two uh, first-class passengers, the Carters, and um they... Um, when the Titanic hit the, William and Lucille Carter were their names and, um, the Titanic hit the iceberg and Lucille was in the cabin with her, their two children and William was still up kind of smoking and he came down to the cabin and said, um, you should probably get dressed and head up there. And Lucille was like, okay. And then, like, picked the, um, you know, got the children already, went through the ordeal of, you know, getting into a life raft and all that stressful stuff. Um, and she did not see William again until her lifeboat arrived at the Carpathia and he was leaning against the rails, just kind of like, hello, great to see you. And she came up, you know, um, up the lake with her two small children. Oh. <laughs> like, <sighs> And he said, it's a good breakfast here. And she said what and then he said but you didn't expect to see me and then um less than a year later she did file for divorce and she cited the way her husband acted in that moment on the titanic as one of the primary reasons and that divorce was granted
1: wow (laughs) so one more casualty of the titanic was the carter's marriage
0: yeah
1: just goes to show, even if you like bring yourself on the most luxurious ship imaginable to try and get away from yourself and restart your relationship,
3: mm.
1: you can't escape yourself, can you?
3: A nautical disaster will not save your marriage.
1: <laughs> I mean, hope everybody's taking <laughs> heed to that. Um, well, look, to close off, I'd just like to thank so much the the team uh, that's been around us at RNZ to get this series made. It's been tremendous working on it, it's been a lot of fun. Um, thank you, Abby, for everything you've brought to the podcast. And, Carlo. Man, it's been so fun to work with you on this, and so impressive to watch you. Um, just I don't know the storytelling, the research, the broadcasting chops. It's been a delight being at your at your side for this. So oh, congratulations! Jimmy, it's,
2: been a, it's been a real pleasure. I'm so glad we finally got to work together on something. You know, and just you ask you ask all the right questions. You have such a keen discerning eye, and it was a, a real pleasure to divulge into this mystery with you.
1: Thank you very much. Well, with that, um, we will bid everyone a bon voyage. Uh, one other question that's been coming through a lot is, is there a season two? Not that I know of, but balls in your court, Radio New Zealand. <laughs> Until then, kakete